podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Podcasting to you from my field here in beautiful rural Ireland. I'm Trev Downey, and this is Money Talks with Mo Chatra for Anfield and Next Pro. So let's not wait another second before saying hello to the man himself. Mo, how you doing, man? Yeah, um, awake again after watching uh, Chelsea versus Liverpool, as we recall this. And uh, my word, quite the cure for insomnia that was. Absolutely. Drab, uh, sort of incident-free and uh, very low-quality game of football, to say the least. Uh, We did spend the guts of an hour trying to analyse the little that did happen. So, yeah, um, I'm sure everyone can feel our pain. But we do have a very interesting topic to discuss here because it has many tentacles and there's not a single Liverpool fan, no matter what sort of ridiculously extremist um, uh, position they've adopted who is not at least uh, tangentially interested in what the current uh, finances are around Liverpool when you factor in the ongoing ownership will they won't they sale or not sale partial sale or not sale Uh, and then we have of course the remarkable revelations this week in the Deloitte Football Money League. So I think we'll just get cracking straight into it, Mo, because you've structured a show here for us which has a lot to get through. So let's begin with that publication of the Deloitte Football Money League just in the past week there. Obviously, as I've alluded to, created quite a buzz, quite a stir amongst all the Reds who are asking many pointed questions on the back of it. For people who may have missed out on it or people like me who are perhaps not exactly uh, financially uh, uh, clued in or um, perhaps vaguely agnostic when it comes to this type of thing, could you maybe recap the key findings of the Deloitte Football Money League for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So um, Deloitte release a, a report each year, um, and this is its 26th uh, publication now, um, annual publication, the Deloitte Football Money League. And it ranks uh, the 20 top football clubs from around the world based on revenue. And um, the, I suppose, good news, if you want to look at it that way, is that Liverpool have placed a third. So of uh, all of the clubs from the 2021-22 season, uh, Liverpool placed above every single club in the world bar two. And those two clubs were Real Madrid that came in in second place. Um, and Manchester City that came in in first place. Um, so well done, Manchester City, for coming out on top. Uh, but I'll come on to them in just a moment. Um, so Liverpool um, did fantastically well, achieved um, a record-breaking turnover of £594 million, which is absolutely staggering. Um, you have to go back uh, only a few years to around 2016-17, say, when the revenue was in the region of about 360 million. Um, so it has increased significantly in just the space of five uh, seasons from 2016 17 to 21-22, from 360 million to 594. And it really does demonstrate that Liverpool are certainly, um, in terms of revenue, if nothing else, uh, an absolute powerhouse. Um, and for the first time, Liverpool within the Deloitte Football Money League 
has finished above Manchester United. Manchester United's turnover for uh, 21-22 was £11 million less at £583 million. Um, PSG um, came in at £554 million um, to round off the top five. Their commercial revenue um, was in the region of about £320-330 or so million. And... Um, a bit like a certain club in Manchester um, whose home kit is in a shade of blue, um, that the commercial revenue can be, never mind taken with a pinch of salt, but a bag full. So um, that that certainly is is a, a revenue amount to 554 million that um, may, may not be from uh, sources that are uh, completely outside of um, Qatar in much the same way that um, Manchester City's um, £619 million, um, isn't necessarily all um, from sources outside of Abu Dhabi. Uh, Real Madrid, um, their turnover was £605 million, and um, so theirs was just £11 million above that of Liverpool. So it really does show um, the leaps and bounds that Liverpool have come on um, in, in terms of... Um, success from a financial perspective that their turnover is at the level of arguably the most popular club and the biggest club in world football in Real Madrid. Um, so so that that is impressive. And just to round this off, um, the breakdown for Liverpool's 594 million um, comprised of um, 266 million for um, um, sorry, it was uh, broadcast revenue, uh, which was the highest of any club in world football for that season. Um, it was 233 million for uh, commercial revenue, which was the highest it has ever been for Liverpool Football Club. And um, rounding it off, it was uh, 94 million, um, uh, sorry, 95 million for match day revenue. So creeping up towards that 100 million pound mark, and it should be coming in and around that figure pretty much every season as and when the Anfield Road end expands. So fantastic results for Liverpool. Um, and this is the first result, uh, reporting rather, of the 21-22 figures. And uh, we'll have further details um, of, of that position when the annual accounts are published in a few weeks' time um, at the end of February or the beginning part of March. Wait, this is all objectively really good. This is all objectively positive stuff and the complications only arise when you filter down to how that positivity then transfers itself onto the park. And we'll have a little discussion about that probably predominantly towards the end. But just what about people, you know, like I said, uh, the, the the online community is uh, uh, just full of, of, of extremity and loyalists to one point of view or another. And obviously there was a big reaction to this uh, information coming out. Um, people who are very... Uh, high on FSG have pointed to the fact that you know the club finishing so high third place as you say is really a sort of validation for the way that FSG run the place that they are doing a really really good job in that regard where do you land on that do you share the view that uh, Liverpool are in such an elevated lofty position in that Deloitte money league because of FSG stewardship Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise, and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. I think there is some truth to that argument, and I don't entirely agree with it necessarily. Um, 
I think if you look at the um, breakdown, um, 594 million is nothing to be sniffed at. It's one of the highest um, amounts of revenue any football club has ever generated. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of all clubs in any season, that that brings um, Liverpool's 21-22 um, turnover into, I think, probably the top 15 or 20 of all time. Um, so, so that that's the level to which um, that income was generated. Um, certainly, FSG had put the things in place to achieve that. So what they put in place was obviously Jurgen Klopp as manager. They brought in Michael Edwards as sporting director. And between the two of them, um, along with uh, Mike Gordon uh, representing FSG, that, that triangle of terror um, wreaked havoc on our arrivals uh, when it came to recruitment um, in that purple patch between 2016 and 2018. Uh, and that recruitment propelled us to um, these unprecedented heights over the last few seasons, which in turn has helped us to generate the levels of revenue that it has. Um, but I do still feel that, and it's something I've talked about on, on Money Talks before, that um, I think that some of this success has been achieved in spite of the model um, FSG have implemented run because of it. Um, so I think I think if you look back at last season, you know we, we played pretty much every single possible game we could, um, which then helped us to generate 95 million of match day revenue. Um, and because of that on-pitch success, that then um, in turn helps to generate um, great levels of commercial uh, revenue too, um, most notably through the night deal, and that that is dependent on um, selling. Um, you know, many, many kits uh, all around the world. Uh, and obviously that isn't possible unless there is that success on the pitch. Um, but then when you look at broadcast revenue, again, um, finishing, you know, in, in the top two in the Premier League, as well as um, finishing um, in the finals of the Champions League, helped to generate um 266 million of broadcast revenue. Um, and I would argue that that was achieved more because of um, Jurgen Klopp and his coaching staff um, than it was because of uh, the FSG model and of FSG themselves. Um, so I, I think it. my, my answer is it's, it's a group effort. I, I don't think it's fair to say that it was achieved because of the ownership. And in much the same way that uh, you wouldn't find... Um, uh, other other fan bases necessarily saying that you know our turnover has been achieved because of our ownership or those in charge of our club. Um, I, I, th I think that more of the credit does belong to um, Jurgen and um, the, the guys involved in recruitment and coaching, um, as well as obviously the players themselves, um, and, and and that is is uh, something that is very important. And just linked to that very quickly. Um, one of the other points to note is that alongside that um, sky high levels of revenue, we also saw the wage bill um, reach um, its highest ever mark for Liverpool Football Club at £368 million. It's an eye-watering amount, Trev, and it's an amount of money that um, was about £64, £65 million in excess of the wage bill uh from the previous season um so sorry 54 million pounds i should say so um it was a very significant increase in the wage bill um and that is due to the fact that uh, we have heavily incentivized deals and the fact that these players won more games um than pretty much any other club in the world um means that win bonuses were paid out um you know, through the nose and on top of that, you know, with the goals scored, clean sheets, et cetera, et cetera. Again, all of these um, result in bonuses being paid out to players. And so um, no wonder then that the uh, wage bill was so high. And then at the start of the 21-22 season as well, we did see a raft of um, contract extensions uh, for the likes of Allison, And and obviously the more contentious one was uh, that of Jordan Henderson. Uh, but again, all, all of those big increases um, in terms of the contract renewals also played a part in that wage bill going up. So again, you know, one one of the things that FSG's advocates will argue is that um, it demonstrates that we pay very handsomely is the five fifth biggest wage bill in world football. And um, they will say that uh, that is part of the reason why 
uh, Liverpool has now become a destination rather than a stepping stone. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like we're going to have to go back to the wage bill because it is, yeah, there, there are so many uh, tangents uh, one could take from that particular revelation. But I want to just stick with the area that we started with. So if it's not necessarily... 100% down to the uh, glorious stewardship of FSG uh, that we find ourselves in the lofty position we do in that Deloitte League. There is, of course, a counterpoint uh, to that. And some fans uh, who may be the opposite of FSG fans will say that Liverpool finished in that third spot and they will look at it as a justification for actually being angry at uh, FSG, uh, questioning, if you like, how a club who, who, who generates so much revenue, as you said, due to on-the-pitch success as much as anything else, uh, then can somehow apparently struggle to invest significant amounts in the transfer market when, you know, that does not seem to be an issue for a lot of clubs who finished a lot lower in that league than Liverpool did. That is a a point of view you might have some sympathy with as well, Mo. I do, and I I tend to have a bit more sympathy towards that view uh, than to the argument that um, uh, FSG have have delivered... um, massive success for Liverpool Football Club um, almost uh, aligning the credit that they receive um, to the same platform as perhaps a Jurgen Klopp Um, I I, I do think that uh, there's been arguments made over the last several months that uh, the ownership have if anything fallen asleep at the wheel or almost basking in their success and patting themselves on the back um, too much at um, how well they've done um, in um, taking Liverpool to the heights that it has reached, uh, reached over the last two or three years and perhaps took the the view, the attitude, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If, if it was a team that achieved 90-odd points um, you know, last season, is there really the need... Um, to invest heavily in the squad and replenish uh, when it achieved such great success. And um, as a result of that, we've seen um, that there's been a very um, important uh, part of our squad um, where spend has been neglected, and that's been the midfield. And, um, you know, over the last, and it obviously has been reported massively over the last few months, um, our only midfield. Uh, permanent signing over the last four and a half years was Thiago back in the summer of 2020. And it's that lack of investment in the middle of the park um, that has really come home to roost this season. And, you know, we, we've clearly seen many, many performances um, throughout this 22-23 campaign where the midfield has left a lot to be desired. And, um, you know, we... To be fair to FSG, have invested uh, very well in, in terms of our um, attacking lineup. Um, we, we do have um, a very strong um, squad from an attacking perspective, um, arguably the strongest of any um, team in the Premier League. Um, but uh, it perhaps has been at the expense of, of the midfield. And, you know, you, you mentioned about other clubs, you know, you look at even clubs as lowly as West Ham United, Aston Villa um, and one or two others, um, Arsenal in particular. Um, they have all finished um, over the last three years spending um, from a net spend perspective uh, comfortably ahead of Liverpool. And, you know, when you look at revenue levels of this amount, sure, um, you know, we, we do have a high wage bill and we, we spend um, a lot to make sure that these players want to remain at Liverpool. But at the same time, there has to be a balance. And I perhaps um, feel that the, the, the kind of incentivized model that the wage bill is structured around, if anything might be too incentivized to the extent it's paying out more than it should, because outwardly a lot of fans uh, take the view that, well, um, we don't seem to pay as much as other clubs uh, because they'll hear about Liverpool perhaps paying out wages of 
typically no more than 200,000 a week for everyone bar Mo Salah. Um, and yet you regularly hear about uh, our rival clubs paying in excess of 200,000 um, for a number of players in, in their squads. Um, but that, that's because um, they pay less in terms of bonus payments. We, we pay very significant amounts. Um, but no, going back to the, those kind of um, criticisms, I, I still feel that um, we, we should have done more business and the revenue levels reported um, by Deloitte in these past few days and looking back at um, our revenue that was achieved um, during those lockdown affected seasons, um, as well as the uh, season of 2018-19, um, when we generate 533 million, the revenue levels have been um, as, as high as Orbit, about three or four clubs in world football. Um, so to achieve those levels of revenue and still um, to be outspent by other clubs, and most notably Arsenal, um, who've been in that period outside of the Champions League. Um, and, and the key difference there, Trev, is the fact that their ownership took a very different attitude about four or five years ago, uh, where they felt, right, maybe the time has come for us to move away from a self-sustaining model to one where we put our own money into the club in order to help try and turn around the fortunes of Arsenal, and we are now seeing the dividends of that uh, playing out for, for them. Um, but yeah, I, th I think um, we are now left in a position where um, there is a fair bit of surgery to carry out. Um, looks like we won't be doing any of that uh, for the remainder of this transfer window, uh, which then means there'll be a huge spotlight on the next summer's transfer window. And again, my fear is that um, there'll be excess amounts of fume because where um you know some fat perhaps many fans maybe even myself included might be clamoring for possibly four or five signings we might only see two or three um and again there'll be scrutiny of um the finances and ask the questions asked about well where is the money going so um again people will end up uh, directing some of those questions at me on Twitter and uh, my, my timeline will, will definitely be very interesting um, over the summer months during that transfer window. <laughs> Have you ever seen that uh, gif of the dumpster on fire floating down a river? Uh, I think that might be exactly what you're looking at come exactly. summertime, Mo, because like one of the things we can't get away from, you've already sort of flagged it up there, uh, is the wage bill and you talked about surgery and God, how complicated is the surgery going to be when you've got guys who are on these ridiculous uh, uh, packages of remuneration and, and uh, under no uh, pressure to leave um, and you've got like all those different extensions that we've been talking about that seem to be an ongoing thing. That wage bill is gargantuan and what's even like more fascinating and a real shocker I think for everybody is to see that City's wage bill it is for reasons somehow smaller than Liverpool's in the 21-22 season. That, of course, the first question is, how can that be? And the second question is, assuming that it is, how did Liverpool end up with such a large wage bill when, you know, the, the, the common misconception that people have is that Liverpool don't pay as well as the likes of City or Man United or whoever happens to be. Uh, now, you have kind of already suggested and kind of answered this already in terms of the uh, different stipulations and contracts around rewards for tasks achieved. That's probably a massive part of it. But what's your take on that? How do we end up with such a massive outgoing part uh, there when it comes to the wage bill? Well, Trev, um, I've had my uh, lawyers help me out with the answer to this question. <laughs> Wise. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, okay. Where do we begin? Right. So um, the, the city wage bill officially was uh, £353 million pounds in 2122. Um our wage bill was 368. So our wage bill was officially 15 million pounds higher than Manchester City in a season in which, granted, we progressed further in the Champions League than they did, um, though um, 
we we uh, clearly finished below them in the Premier League, um, and in the um, other domestic cup competitions, um, again we we clearly had more success than they did. Um, but you would imagine that um, win bonuses for the FA Cup and the the uh, Carabao um, would not be um, anywhere near as high as they are for um, the the major competitions of the Premier League and the Champions League. So it does beg the question, okay, well, how on earth then um, did Manchester City manage to achieve um, a lower wage bill um, compared to Liverpool when if you look at the squads and you compare them, um, it, it does beg the question, well, how is that possible? Right. Um, part of it is the fact that CE actually don't have as big a squad as many people seem to think. Um, so Manchester City do actually normally keep a, a smaller senior squad of around 20 or so players, maybe 21. And then they do um, pad it out with, um, you know, some of their stronger um, academy talents um, in order to um, field a squad of about 24, 25 um, for the Premier League, Champions League and the domestic cups. But at the same time, um, we all know that um, Manchester City um, has employees whose wage bill sits not on the uh, club's accounts, but instead on the parent company's accounts, which is known as City Football Group. So there is a fair chunk that is set over there. And then on top of that, um, it has been alleged um, through um, certain media sources, um, De Spiegel in Germany, um, who obtained um, uh, leaked emails um, from Manchester City in the past. Um, and it has been based on those emails suggested that um, personnel from um, the club um, had been paid in the past um, through alternative arrangements. Um, so it was noted in some leaked emails that um, a former manager in Mancini um, was paid through uh, an offshore account for um, some of his payments, uh, whereas other um, elements of his pay would have gone, gone through the city accounts. So if, uh, and I hasten to add, um, and I emphasize, um, if um, that arrangement still continues to this day, um, then it is feasible that um, Manchester City um, may be paying players um, through other means. I'm not stating that they are. I'm, I'm just saying that it's possible. Um, but, um, you know, that, that that is certainly something that um, uh, those that are critical of City and the way that they... Um, manage their finances, uh, argue that uh, City perhaps are not quite as um, transparent with with um, their finances as perhaps other clubs. Uh, but that, that, that is probably about as diplomatic a way as I can put it um, in terms of explaining why uh, the City wage bill is, is lower than that of Liverpool. Yeah, uh, like you say, authority issue, and I'm glad that you have the uh, high-powered uh, lawyers involved because, as you say, uh, there is a lot of potential there for uh, eyebrow raising, and uh, I know this is this isn't the show for that, um, but it may cause people to ask a couple of questions which might be pertinent as we move along a little bit. Uh, we kind of have to stick to this wage bill for a second. The knock-on effect here is interesting. If the club do finish, as looks very likely after a showing like today's against Chelsea, outside the top four, say we fall into one of the other European competitions or even maybe outside of European competition altogether, which I think would be a preference for most of us, how sustainable is it to keep this uh, miraculously high wage bill uh, in situ, given what would be, you have to imagine, you outlaid uh, earlier on how success of the park, simply playing every game available, uh, leads to an increase in revenue. 
you're going to have a decrease in revenue if you're going out of competitions and you're not in other competitions. So how do you square that circle where you've got this very inflated wage bill and actually potentially reduced revenue looking ahead to the season to come? Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa. He does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, so, I mean, it is a, it is definitely a concern that has been raised when um, reports about how high the wage bill is um, emerged in the last several days following the publication of the Deloitte report. Um, and that concern is, I think, a, a very valid one that, look, you know, if we end up in Europa or even the Europa Conference or whatever that uh, tin pot competition is called, um, h- how is that going to be sustainable? Um, I, th- I think the good thing is, and I go back to the point I raised earlier, um, we have a very incentivized um, w- wage structure in place. And so if we don't make the top four, um, the uh, pay for players um, should see a, a very significant decrease. And to kind of give a bit of a ballpark um, idea, uh, Manchester United, who, as I understand it, um, incentivize their wages less than Liverpool do, when they um, slipped into the uh, Europa League, um, going back, I think it's about th- three years ago, two years ago, um, their wage bill went down from um, the prior season uh, from three, about 330 million down to about 284. Um, and, and that was directly because of um, losing out on Champions League football and moving into the Europa League. Um, so even with their lesser incentivized wage structure, um, their wage bill saw a very significant reduction. So I would expect that Liverpool's um, should be an even greater reduction. Um, it might drop to um, just over 300 million. Uh, bear in mind this season, uh, we did see uh, Mo Salah's contract extended and he signed uh, for, I think it's a minimum uh, guaranteed 350,000 a week, possibly a bit more than that. Um, so, Yes, it would obviously be a concern for Liverpool fans, though I think the fact that it is such a heavily incentivised structure in terms of wages um, is good in that the wage bill should go go down quite appreciably. And you you can draw that parallel with the United wage bill, which reduced by in the region of uh, 45 million um, two or three seasons ago um, to get a bit of comfort. So... Yes, our turnover would reduce significantly as well. Um, we, we tend to generate um, no less than 80 million from the Champions League. And uh, if we advance pretty far into the competition, we're looking at about 90 to 100 million. But um, by ending up in the Europa, and if we had a decent run in that competition, perhaps getting to the semi final, say, uh, we'd still look to generate around 30, 35 million. Um, so the difference between what we might expect to generate from the Champions League versus a good run in the Europa League, it would be in the region of about £60 million. Pounds, um, but the wage bill would reduce by a pretty similar number. So the, the comforting thing is, um, if if that happens, if we do drop down to the Europa, uh, the, the wage bill should reduce approximately in line uh, with the the drop in income from um, going from the Champions League to the Europa League. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's it's a really thorny issue. That really is, and like to to 
try and swing it back to one of the more positive things that we uh, gleaned from this uh, uh, Deloitte publication. Uh, Liverpool's commercial revenue grew again um, to a record high this time of £233 million. Uh, as you said earlier on, that still leaves us behind United. Uh, whose uh, commercial revenue was 262 million, and City, who uh, apparently um, managed to bring in 316 million pounds. And again, I, I, for for our listeners, I am saying an awful lot of these things with one eyebrow, pretty much off my head, uh, in terms of being raised. What do you think about uh, Liverpool's comparative achievement there, uh, in terms of how they fared against the two clubs from up the M62? Well, let, let's start with United, which is the easier one to talk about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, certainly well done to Liverpool. Um, the, the gap um, in terms of commercial revenue is on the whole closing. I say closing, it was actually a smaller gap um, for the prior season of 2020 21. Uh, but that was because um, in that season of 2020 21, um, income from one of the key sponsors stopped completely uh, for United and um, that um, was reinstated in 21-22 which was the front of shirt sponsorship for Team Viewer Um, whereas the prior season um, Chevrolet um, that payment um, stopped early into that season so that took quite a hit on the United uh, commercial bottom line but nonetheless, it's encouraging that whilst United's um, commercial revenue has actually been decreasing in, in the last several years, Liverpool's continues to grow. And um, as we go into the next season or two, uh, we will start to see the benefits of um, an improved deal for the shirts, uh, front of shirt sponsorship deal with Standard Chartered um, and the sleeve sponsorship um, will uh, be renewed uh, with either um, the current um, sleeve sponsor Expedia or another company and hopefully for a, an appreciable increase um, compared to the current deal which is about 9 million a year I think Liverpool will be hoping for at least 15 if not 20 million a year for that one Manchester City 316 million pounds so their commercial revenue uh, for a club that barely manages to fill um, the Etihad Stadium in Manchester is uh, is um, yeah quite staggering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so again, with with the help of my lawyers, um, have come up with <laughs> an answer to this one. So I'll just um, point out that um, City on their website do have a very long list of sponsors. Um, their biggest sponsor that is not linked to Abu Dhabi um, in some form or fashion is Puma. And they signed a deal a couple of years ago with the City Football Group worth 65 million a year, um, which was to cover not only Manchester City Football Club, but the other 10, 11, 12 clubs that are part of that um, multi-group, uh, multi-club model. Um, but even if we assume that the entire 65 million goes straight into Manchester City and none of it to um, the other clubs within the City Football Group, that still leaves um, £251 million of commercial revenue um, to account for. Now, the other main sponsor for uh, Manchester City is Etihad and they sponsor the shirt, front of shirt and the stadium. Now, leaked documents, um, which Manchester City have never denied the veracity of, um, suggested back in 2015 that uh, that deal uh, was paying out in the region of about uh, £67 million. And the leaked email suggested that um, actually Etihad as an airline paid only about eight, nine million pounds into that. The rest of it was topped up by 
um, the state of Abu Dhabi. I'm not saying that that is exactly what is happening, but that is what the leaked email suggested. Um, and that was at a time when City's commercial revenue was significantly less than it is now. So 316 million, um, 251 million when you take out the Puma deal. And yes, they've got other sponsors such as Nissan, um, um, a, a company involved in crypto, the likes of Tinder. Um, but a lot of these deals will typically be only worth for a normal football club around half a million, one million, one and a half million a year. These are sponsorship deals where um, your logo will be displayed in programs. Um, it will be displayed on those boards that you see behind players and managers when they're um, carrying out interviews before and after a game. Um, but th th that that's pretty much it. Um, th there's obviously a, a decent um, shirt sponsorship um, in place as well for City, which, you know, again, if you're being generous, maybe paying out about 10 million a year. But you're still talking 240 million from the remaining sponsors. And when you then look at what sponsorship deals for these other minor sponsorship deals normally pay out to most football clubs, typically one or two million a year, um, you're, you're then expecting a very, very, very significant amount of money coming through the Etihad sponsorship deal. So Etihad clearly are, are extremely generous in terms of paying out towards um, their sponsorship of Manchester City. They, they clearly feel it's um, worth um, very, very handsome sums. Um, um, but, and the other thing to say is that clearly Manchester City's commercial department has um, absolute miracle workers because in order to be able to generate those amounts of commercial revenue for a club whose fan base is clearly smaller than a lot of the bigger clubs around Europe um, is is all the more um, jaw-dropping. So um, hats off to Manchester City's commercial department. I don't know how you do it, but um, fair play to you, lads. I think that's the best place for us to leave it just that there are obviously a tremendous bunch of lads uh, all in and uh, step sort of gingerly away from that particular subject and let other people uh, get uh, uh, veins popping in their neck as they uh, address it we want to talk uh, there's there's a very big elephant in the room here throughout all of this conversation, which is the potential uh, sale of the club, the potential departure of the owners, or whether it'll be a partial sale, all that type of thing. The the the, the big unanswered question that is driving an awful lot of us a bit scatty because of the clear knock-on effect that it has on everything uh, and will have on everything. And before we look uh, at that specific thing about, you know, the whole idea of uh, what you think is going to happen around the ownership, it, 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 there is a situation perhaps, I guess, where FSG stay around. Now, in, in your Twitter thread that a lot of people have read, you did basically say that change was necessary, that FSG needed to change their model if they are going to stay around and have a majority stake, or that selling up, which we'll discuss in a bit, would be needed in order for the club to basically remain competitive as the, the years uh, move on. Now, with the revenue amounts at the levels that we, we've already talked about, do you you know, objectively a good news story. Do you, do you think change is really required or, or is there some way in which either the current ownership or next in the, next in the gap could tweak things in a minor way uh, and the existing model therefore could prove effective in an ongoing way? I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. This is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My LibertyShield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac, and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. 
These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes, and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. Okay, so I think that it is possible, even with minor tweaks, for our current model to somehow still be effective. I don't, I don't think it's a model that is completely without any merit. And the reason I say that is because of the levels of turnover that are being achieved. Um, if, if Liverpool um, were able to um, achieve um, pre- uh, Champions League football next season, um, their, their turnover would be between 550 to 600 million next season. Their turnover this season um, will probably be in the region of about 550 million pounds. Um, and that is me assuming that they don't get past Real Madrid in the Champions League. So that I'm assuming on that basis that they miss out on the top four and they get knocked out against um, Real Madrid in the Champions League um, last 16. And even with that, I, I still estimate that their turnover for this season um, should be in the region of about 540, 550 million pounds. So, with those amounts of money being generated um, and then going into the following season where, again, I'm assuming no Champions League football, so therefore the wage bill comes down quite significantly, um, but still managing to achieve um, turnover of perhaps about 500 million. And if they do manage to get into the Champions League, again, turnover about 550 million plus. Those amounts of money, even with a very high wage bill, uh, which is about 60-odd percent of the overall turnover for the club, should still mean that there should be enough money to um, purchase players. It shouldn't mean that we're skint season on season. Um, but I think the tweak that would make it effective would be by going to an extent back to what made us um, so successful in the last few years in the first place, which was about being extremely smart with recruitment. Um, you know, Andy Robertson, magnificent servant for Liverpool Football Club over the years, an absolute genius by eight million pounds. Um, or, in, you know, another way of looking at it is we, we basically um, did an exchange for uh, the boy Stewart uh, when he went to Hull um, in the same window back in uh, 20, when was it, 2017. Um, you know, those are the types of deals that can still be had. And, you know, you look at a Brighton who have been absolutely inspired in terms of their recruitment over the last two, three years, just finding gem after gem. And some of these clubs around Europe as well. You look at a Napoli, um, you know, they lost a number of big, big players um, in, in, in their window um, of summer of last year. And, um, you know, there were many fans of that club who were very fearful about um, dropping well down that table. And yet they're at the top of the, um, you know, Italian uh, top division Serie A. And it looks like they'll go on to win that league. And the reason for that is that they um, pulled off some inspired signings. And I don't see why we Liverpool Football Club can't do the same. But that tweak is all dependent on going back to um, an analytics-focused approach to recruitment, which is clear from all the reports we've moved away from in the last year or two. And obviously, some of our colleagues here on on Anfield Index, Anfield Index Pro, have covered that subject at length and and expressed their frustrations, most notably um, the boys on um, Under Pressure, you know, who who focus on analytics more than um, any of us. And... um, you know, they they know and they've seen and they analyze, um, um, you know, the kind of data and uh, can see um, the kind of benefits that that can bring. And so I think we, we don't have to be pulling off um, a, a kind of Man- Manchester City or Chelsea approach to the business of um, spending 200 million every summer. You know, you, you can have, yes, certain windows where you might look to buy a unicorn like a Jude Bellingham for eye-watering sums of money, but that can also be supplemented by um, some very smart, astute signings um, of players that 
have a very low profile, have largely slipped under the radar, and you get them in at about the age of 19 to 21 uh, for a few million quid before somebody else snaps them up. Enzo Fernandez apparently was a player that we could have signed in the summer. Um, he ended up at Benfica, and if we tried to sign in this window, um, he would have cost again in the in the region of about 103 million pounds. So. If FSG uh, were not to move on, if they decided right, we we, we um, tested the waters and we 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 didn't see anything that you know took our fancy, and we will st- stick it around for another few more years. Um, tweaks to the model, I think, can make things work. I I, I personally think it's still an outside bet uh, for, for it to work because of the fact that we've clearly seen. Um, a shift in the way that we operate where um, our man Pet Linders um, who, who does come in I, I think for some unwarranted criticism because bear in mind he was Jürgen's right hand man last season where we nearly won the lot and we, we barely heard a peep about him then um, but nonetheless um, it's clear though that he and Jürgen are a lot more involved in decision making around recruitment and I think if we can go back to what brought us to the dance in the first place with a little bit more of an analytics focus and giving a bit more kudos and value to, um, you know, the, the, the nerds, as Dan Kennett calls them, um, then I don't see why um, the current model um, couldn't still deliver success. Now, I kind of like this stage of the show that we've gotten to where we've got you in speculation mode. And I think that's where we'll finish. We'll uh, wave goodbye to the uh, boys from Deloitte and focus uh, away from the Money League for a while, but stick with a subject that we've already brought up here, which is the potential sale of a minority or a full stake in the club, which is just continuing to generate endless endless amounts of raucous uh, discussion, speculation, debate. We have some very interesting stories, often wildly conflicting, coming from different parts uh, of the world, from different levels of trustworthiness in terms of the reporters associated with them. Um, And nobody is any the wiser about what the end result might well be. So I do just want to take you down the primrose path of speculation just to finish the show and ask you what you think is likely to happen here. Have you seen any indicators? I know you like to look at the, obviously clearly look at the financial side of things. Do you see anything? I've heard a few people say things like, for example, oh, minority state, that that doesn't make sense uh, uh, for anyone really. So uh, they dismiss it on that ground. Where, Where do you think it's heading? And just to complicate issues, we saw potential good news for United to have somebody, uh, a, a, a very rich, well-known Brit, uh, Mr. Ratcliffe, making uh, eyes at them. So how does that conflict and contrast and complicate any potential future ownership of Liverpool when you've got uh, Man United simultaneously, apparently, uh, in the same boat? So where do you think this goes, Mo? And do you think the United thing complicates it for us in terms of perhaps uh, a negative impact uh, or is it something that we don't really have to worry about? Well, right. Before I kind of answer the questions, um, I think one of the things that I think has become really clear over the last couple of months since David Ornstein first broke the news through The Athletic is that Many, many fans across, many, many Reds across the globe are very clearly emotionally invested to a huge extent in the club and its fortunes. And um, that's why this is such a passionate debate where, you know, you see it every single day on Twitter where, you know, you've got different sides of the argument um, falling out massively, getting personal even. Um, and, And the reason that happens is because um, of the invo- emotional investment that these fans have. And, you know, I get that. You know, Liverpool is there to all of us um, and we all want what's best. And some feel, people feel what's best is a change of ownership. Other, feel, other people feel strongly that, um, you know, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And 
uh, be careful what your wish for is is a kind of uh, line that's often trotted out. I think the situation, and again, you're, you're right. I mean, pure speculation mode here is likely to pan out in uh, an outright uh, sale or a majority sale where FSG still stick around, um, but as minority uh, shareholders. Now, that is at odds with the reports coming out from um, the likes of Jane Pierce and one or two others where the suggestions have been um, there's not been any really strong interest. And on top of that, if anything, um, a minority stake will be sold. I think that that's posturing. I think that that is FSG saying to prospective bidders, look, um, the kind of initial figures that you've been kind of floating under our noses haven't really taken our fancy. We're not in any rush to sell. If you really want this club, or if you at least want to buy out a majority of it, uh, you're going to have to do better. So I think that's all part of the dance. It's all part of the game that is being played. So I, th I think anyone that uh, is very keen for the ownership to uh, go completely or to at least relinquish control of the club through sale of a majority of the shares um, shouldn't take all of that to heart and um, to a great extent. I, th I think with, sorry. No, I, 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 I'm just nodding along, man. I'm just nodding along. I, I, I feel like, I feel like, the uncertainty is huge here, uh, and we we can only speculate. Do you know what? Sorry, finish your point because there is a question I want to ask you at the end. But finish your point here that you were going to make. Sorry, and I'll I'll come back at the at the very death. Yeah. So yeah, then I was I was I was just about to come on to the the, the Manchester United question. So I think that it does complicate matters because almost surely. Um, the two clubs are vying for much the same group of potential investors because yeah. the amounts of people that are out there that have got, you know, whether it's three and a half, four billion, five, six, seven billion to spend on a football club are very, very few on this planet. Um, so inevitably, it will be a very small group of individuals or companies um, or consortium as such. So um, that will be putting pressure because on the other side, from the United side, there are uh, bullish reports that United expect a deal to be done within the first quarter of 2023, i.e. by the 31st of March. So if you're um, FSG and you have had um, prospective uh, buyers um, sniffing around, but you also are hearing that they might be taking some interest in United. Um, it, it just adds that greater pressure potentially um, to maybe get a deal done for less than you may have originally been trying to get a deal done for, uh, because you don't want to lose that investment um, and then miss out altogether. And the added dynamic to all of this is that, as I touched on in my last Money Talks with Dave, Dave Hendrick, um, FSG are looking to raise funds for one thing we, we know is fact, which is something called Fenway Corners, which is a um, multi-billion dollar um, real estate uh, development in and around the vicinity of um, Fenway Park in Boston. And they may or may not be looking to generate um, funds to invest into a um, another sports team in the U United States. So um, because of that need to generate funds, um, there is an expectation that um, FSG uh, need to raise substantial sums. And if it's only a minority stake that is being sold, and then there's fan pressure for that money to be invested into Liverpool, how much of that will be left um, to invest into um, um, uh, an NBA or an NFL franchise or into Fenway Corners? So that's why I personally feel, and this is, again, me just speculating that um, a sale outright or a majority uh, shareholders uh, sale um, is the most likely outcome um, in, in due course. Which brings me back to where I was going to uh, cut across you there earlier on. And you've set it up nicely here because 
uh, I've seen people who are decent, decent people, uh, you know, people I follow on Twitter, like because they've adopted a team and taken a side, they have been hacking the back off each other, you know, blocking each other and screaming at each other and this type of thing. And it's all so premature, Mo, because nobody knows who the potential owners are yet. We can all make our points, uh, our moral concerns can be raised and all that when and if something is actually confirmed. So until then, there's just an awful lot of needless energy wastage going on and negativity around it. But I do kind of feel like we should finish up by just asking, you've done a little bit of speculation. Let's get a feel for your preference now, because, you know, we can read between the lines and listen to the things you've said on various shows. But do you have a preference yourself for what the situation is next season. I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table. I do have a preference. My preference would be that the current ownership uh, sell to somebody else who will do right by us. Uh, you used the word unicorn earlier on. Maybe, maybe I have a belief and a hope and a dream of unicorns, but that's me. That's where I currently am uh, because I think we may have reached a sort of an impasse. You talked about could we tweak it or was it possible to tweak the current model? And I just it all seems a little bit overly complex, uh, complicated. Whereas uh, new broom sweeps clean and all the rest of it, and it might just be the excitement and the investment that would push us on and continue the Klopp era. That's my simple perspective on it, and based on not aligning to any of the current rumours. Do you have a preference for what the situation looks like ownership-wise next season? Yeah, it is. Again, putting my cards on the table, um, I, I think that the the best solution for Liverpool Football Club is for a change of ownership. I, I think um, even if that means that uh, FSG end up retaining, say, 10, 20%, ultimately it would mean that they would have ceded control to another group. But that other group would have to do, uh, for me, two key things. A, um, bring enough funds in order to be able to um, enable direct owner investment into the club. And this is something that I've uh, discussed on Money Talks and tweeted about as well, that as and when Liverpool Football Club, sorry, Manchester United Football Club even, um, sell and uh, move on from the Glazers to um, whether it's Radcliffe or somebody else, um, in all likelihood, they will move away from their model of no direct owner investment into one where their new owner or owners invest into that club as well. And that will mean of the um, wealthiest um, seven clubs in the Premier League, so the top six plus now Newcastle United, um, we would be the only one still trying to operate to a self-sustaining model. And in this current um, world where, um, as we see from the likes of Chelsea and PSG, um, that they stick two fingers up at um FFP or the remnants of it with one hand and the middle finger with the other. And um, it really doesn't, it's barely worth the paper it's written on. And, and you know, clubs are really um, very cavalier now in how they operate. So um, we, we can either try to rigidly stick to a set of rules that aren't really being applied and fall behind, or we, we adapt and change. Uh, and yes, we would have to adapt and change in a way that um, is adapting to an ugly and pleasant aspect of football and modern football, which is that it's all about money. And um, it's a sad reality, unfortunately, of football, that, that that's the way it's moving. But, you know, we, we can either stick to principles and, you know, um, ultimately in the longer term uh, struggle to compete or, or we look to change. And, that's why I think the change of ownership um, where owners look to invest directly into the club is one key um, requirement. And the second one for me um, is that they look to put in um, a really strong um, structure um, in terms of uh, recruitment and squad management. Uh, and I, th I think we've moved away from that in the last couple of years. And I think that to an extent is why uh, we have seen um, the team regress this season, frankly. Uh, and, and I think we need 
to put in a strong model in place with an assertive um, sporting director with Gravitas who is keen to ensure that there's an objective approach to squad management. And, you know, Jürgen, yes, he's an emotional character. And that is perhaps why um, he has looked to keep certain players around um, for longer than perhaps he should have. Um, but at the same time, I, th- I think it's hard to argue now that um, that is um, is completely the right approach when, you know, we're looking to cling on to players who perhaps should be seeing out their twilight years elsewhere. And instead, we're looking for them to um, see those years at, at our club and potentially at the expense of, you know, fresh young blood in larger numbers um, who can provide that dy- um, dynamism, that energy that we are clearly lacking in certain aspects of our football, um, most notably midfield. So, yeah, I, I would be really keen to see a sale um, either outright or majority, um, but they would have to approach it in a, in a sensible way, not go in the Todd Bowley approach where, you know, the Todd father um, looks to sign a player every three days. And if he hasn't, then, uh, you know, he, he, he uh, starts having withdrawal symptoms of some nature. So, you know, we, we don't want that type of owner um, because Chelsea, um, yes, they have signed some great, great players, uh, but it's a complete disregard for squad harmony and things like that. And that matters. And, um, you know, you don't want to be upsetting the squad dynamics too greatly by having a massive influx of players. Um, so it, it all has to be managed carefully. And obviously Klopp treasures that continuity um, very highly. And it is important. I would argue personally that he perhaps has valued it too highly at the expense of um, sufficient squad replenishment. But I think that, you know, if, if he can reflect and say, okay, maybe I have approached certain things in the wrong way. And with stronger safe owners coming in and um, adding a strong sporting director to the mix, I, I think that would really set us up beautifully um, as perennial challengers. And we'd pick up plenty of silverware in the years to come if that was to happen. Very much find myself aligning there with you in terms of that particular opinion. To say you've covered off a lot there is an understatement. So for taking us through yet another financial maze, Mo Chatra, thanks very much. Thank you, Trev. Much appreciated. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. And we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash Discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.